Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. This will be one of the shorter sections throughout the book that we preach. But the text gives us this story and makes this break for a reason. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, we will read through 26. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Well, today is Valentine's Day, and I'm sure there are uh, Christians and churches all over the country who have taken the opportunity to preach a sermon series on relationships or dating or marriage or love. And here we are at Redeemer about to preach from a text where God is anxious and eager to put to death some fornicators. So if you came here hoping for a Valentine's Day themed sermon, I uh, am going to sadly disappoint you. Uh, we are going to do anything but that. We're not going to talk about love and passion. Uh, we are going to talk about death and judgment and destruction. So let's understand what's going on in this text and then we'll bring it together and try to understand how the Lord has spoken to us through it. As we discussed last week, Eli's sons, the priest and his sons who were also priests ministering in the temple, were profaners of the temple. They were unbelievers engaging in very wicked practices. And Eli is hearing about this. He now knows of this because he's hearing a report from the people of Israel. And so he goes with this attempted rebuke that we hear in verses 22 through 24. Let's read those again. Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so the text tells us not only a brief summary of what we learned last week, what they were doing to the people of Israel. And I love that phrase. It reminds us that their sin was actually affecting and hurting and harming the people of Israel. And that's how sin typically is. Even sins that we think are really just about me and my personal life, our sins almost always affect other people in ways that we don't know. But this is an obvious way. They are sinning against God and sinning against people hurting the people of Israel, but the text even tells us an additional element of their wickedness that we didn't learn last week. And it tells us that they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent meeting. Now, we don't know much about these women, but this was a legitimate role. Uh, in, in the book of Exodus, you read as the tent in the tabernacle was being constructed, there was uh, these mirrors that were set out in the front, and there were women who were charged to serve in the temple and to serve at the entrance. Now, the Bible just doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about who they were, what were their qualifications, and what exactly they were doing. Um, but we know that biblically, this was a biblical role. This wasn't something that the sons made up themselves 
necessarily, but these were women who were following the Old Testament and, 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 and going with what God put down in Exodus, and yet here we have the priests fornicating with them. So, as I said, their, their sin just continues to compound. Every time we learn something about, about Phineas and Hophni, it only gets worse. So Samuel, or forgive me, Eli is hearing about his son's practices and he attempts to rebuke them. In verse 23, he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of, uh, for I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So Eli finally steps in and tries to rebuke his sons for what they are doing. And this is, falls under the expression we have in English called, too little, too late. Too little, too late. It's, it's too late, right? They are set in their ways. This is who they are. These are the kinds of things that he should have been doing a long time ago. As a matter of fact, I really believe that the text is subtly indicting Eli right now. When my first go through, when I first read through this, uh, you might think that Eli is just like a good father, right? Here's a father who loves his kids, he loves the Lord, and he's trying to rebuke and discipline his kids. And some commentators read it that way. You will find there are some Christian commentators who think very positively of Eli. But I do not, uh, and I think God is going to make very clear that he doesn't think very positive of Eli. And I think when you look at this text in its subtleties, you'll find that the purpose of this text is not to exalt Eli for being this great dad who's trying to discipline his wayward children. And why do I say that? Well, because so much of this, the first portion of this, is based on what Eli is hearing from the people of Israel. And so there's a couple things that this tells us. I don't know which one it is, but both are bad. And that tells us one of two things. It tells us that Eli is not actually aware of his own sons, his own employees also. He's not even aware of their wickedness. It's open, it's plain, it's obvious, but he had to hear it secondhand from other people. So it shows just how incompetent of a priest he is that all of this was happening right under his nose in front of his face, but he had to hear it from other people. Or there's another way of interpreting this. The other way of interpreting it is that he did know what was happening, but it didn't bother him until it started affecting their reputation. That this had been happening, he was aware of it, he didn't care, but now all of a sudden all of Israel is upset with them and all of Israel is gossiping and talking about them. And he's like, look it, look it, now we're in trouble. So I don't really know which is which, but either way, it's not good. He's either an incompetent priest and an incompetent father, or he's been turning a blind eye to this and he only cares now that their social reputation is affected. But either way, I think this text is subtly, in some way or another, shaming Eli for this pathetic rebuke that has come far too late. But nonetheless, he does at least try to rebuke them. He does try to tell them that this is not good and that they should not be doing these things. So I guess he deserves some credit. And then he says this kind of bizarre phrase in verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if he sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, if you were to look up commentaries on this verse, commentators are typically all over the place. We don't exactly precisely know what Eli is trying to get across here. Uh... It could just be bad theology, right? I wouldn't put that past Eli. This might just be bad theology. Uh, some commentators think he's making reference to the judges of Israel, saying there are some sins that 
bring us to the judges and then God through the judges can work these out. But the kinds of sins you're doing won't go to the judges. This is just between you and God and you're in big trouble. Um, so they try to work the judges into it. Uh, some people suggest that it's some kind of specific, that because these are the profanation of the temple of the holy things, that these are sins that are uniquely just between a person and God. Uh, so there's some different varieties as to what it precisely he means, and I'm not exactly sure what he means. This is certainly not something that I would want to say to someone. Um, so I, I kind of maybe just lean towards the bad theology part. But the point is, is no matter how you sort of slightly understand 25, he's trying to communicate at least bare minimum to his sons that this is not just like a beef between you and Israel and God's going to decide between you guys. He's going to mediate. No, you have sinned directly in horrible ways against God. And now it's you versus God and you lose that every time. If your dispute is between you and God, I promise you're in the wrong. If you're having an argument with God, I promise you, you're wrong. These of men who have sinned grievously against the Lord, and now it is just between them and the Lord. So Eli attempts to rebuke his sons. But it fails. And we're going to come back to this verse in a moment, but, but, but I want us to, to summarize the entire text before we make much of it. But I want us to notice on our first pass-through the very, very interesting, albeit offensive and difficult reason that the text gives us for why these boys did not listen to their father. Look, don't catch, don't, don't miss the subtlety here. This is, this is very, very hard to understand and to swallow. The text tells us in the second half of verse 25, after Eli rebukes, it says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. So they won't hear it. They're set in their ways. But then the text tells us for or because, your translation might say. And I checked all of them. There is a causal relationship. There's a reason they are not listening to their father. Something has happened that has some kind of mysterious causal relationship as to why they have not repented. And what does the text say? For, because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The way the text is worded, it is God's desire to kill them that prevented them from repenting. Why didn't they repent? Because God wanted to kill them. So the implication is if they did repent, God would be unjust to kill them. And since God wants to kill them, he ain't going to let them repent. Why did the sons not listen? Because God's done with them. He's ready to bring judgment. The text is telling us that these men have reached a point of no return. These, these are men who have been so given over to the hardness of their heart. They have been so given over into their own sin that God has said, okay, now I have decreed it. I'm going to judge them and so I will not let them change course. Judgment is ready. Judgment is deserved. There is no coming back from this. By the way, this is not a mysterious doctrine. You can read Hebrews chapter 6 talks about apostasy, those who fall away, and it says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who have fallen away. The book of Hebrews is very clear that there are some people who become so hardened, who are exposed to so much light and reject it for so long that to use the language of Romans 1, God just gives them up. He gives up on them. He lets them go, and there's no hope for them. It's impossible 
to renew them to repentance. They have been given up. God has let them go. This is a case study we're seeing here of men who have hardened their own hearts and so God is ready to judge them and so he set his decree and so now even in their own life there's no going back. There's no repentance. God is ready to judge them. And then the text does what we've seen it done a couple times last week. And it immediately takes this hard, right? There's no segue. There's no eloquent transition. It just, boom, don't forget about Samuel. The text is doing just like it did last week. It wants to set up a direct comparison between the current situation and what God is doing in Samuel. Verse 26, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So yet again, we see that in the midst of the, the discouragement, there is hope. In the midst of the wickedness, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But notice what the text is also subtly doing. It's making a very, very direct comparison between Samuel and the current priesthood situation. Verse 22 began by reminding us that Eli was old. Verse 26 reminds us that Samuel's growing. The text from 22 through 25 reminds us that the sons were wicked, but Eli is growing in stature. The text from 22 through 25 reminds us that all of Israel is recognizing the wickedness of these men, and they're talking about the wickedness of these men, but Samuel is growing in favor, not just with God, but also with man. So in the priesthood system, we've got an old man and his sons who are wicked, who God is going to judge, who the people don't like. And then with Samuel, we've got a growing young man who the people love, who has favor with God. He is the direct opposite. God is giving Israel exactly who they need. The, the total opposite of what they currently have, that's what Samuel is. We see the graciousness of God to entirely turn around Israel's situation. Now again, it wasn't overnight. Samuel's still a child. He's still growing. He's still learning. It's not happening overnight. But God is working and he is preparing Samuel to help bring restoration to Israel. Now I want us to see, how, why did the author include this portion? To some degree, it's very helpful for the flow of the narrative. But I think there's an important lesson for us here. The emphasis of the text here, I really believe, is that culmination in verse 25. The author wants us to know, he wants us to have a brief insight into how God has been dealing with these men. And it's very, very important for the author to go out of his way to tell us God has decided to judge these men. He's, he's telling us the end of the story here. Now, why would that be important? And I think that we learn a larger lesson here, a very important lesson for us to remember, as difficult as it might be. And it's this. The text wants us to remember God's freedom to show mercy or judgment to whomever he pleases. God has the freedom to either pour out just judgment or pour out mercy on whomever he pleases whenever he pleases. In other words, here's what I think the text is doing. We all know that God is working to bring about some kind of restoration. The book wouldn't be written if that didn't happen. But the question is, is how is God going to do that? How's God going to help Israel? Is he, is he going to judge these wicked, terrible people? Maybe. 
But you know what else is an option? He could pour out mercy on them. Why doesn't he reveal himself to them the way he did Paul? We're learning about Paul in our Sunday school. Why doesn't he just appeal, uh, or come down and appear to these men? It doesn't seem like God is literally doing everything he possibly can to bring about the change of heart here. And that's the whole purpose of the text. The text wants to see that's not God's plan. God's plan is not to change these men's heart and pour out mercy on them. God's plan is to judge them. And his plan is so secure and so set that repentance isn't possible. They did not listen to their father because God wanted to judge them. We are reminded of this very difficult reality here that when God decides to pour out judgment and justice on someone, he has the prerogative to do that. He owes mercy to no one. Mercy by definition is unowed. If you earned mercy, if you deserved mercy, it would not be mercy. That, that, that's actually a nonsensical statement. Mercy is not owed. You can never demand it or expect it from God by definition. So these men might have received mercy, but God in his wisdom and justice decided, no, they're getting judgment. This, by the way, is a very important theme throughout all of the Bible. And it really, really is dealt with very explicitly in Romans chapter 9. If you would turn, keep your marker here and turn to Romans chapter 9. Although Romans 9 is dealing with an even grander scope, but the application is still important for us nonetheless. Romans chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 14. The context here is important. Romans chapter 9 is primarily what Paul is dealing with an argument in Romans 9. And the argument that he's dealing with is he just got done in Romans 8 talking about God's freedom and grace to save those whom he loves, to save those whom he desires, and that those he saves, nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. And so the largely Jewish audience, though Romans certainly would have been a mixed congregation of Jew and Gentile, but the largely Jewish audience receiving this letter would have said, this doesn't make sense to us, Paul. You're out here trying to tell us that God can show mercy on people. He can save his people. But who are God's people? The Jews. And most of them aren't saved. So here you're telling us God has a special chosen people and he can save them, yet he hasn't. How do these pieces fit together? And so Paul goes on a long, beautiful argument throughout Romans chapter 9. He talks about how we have to rethink and re-understand Israel. Israel doesn't quite mean what you say it means. But then a large part of Paul's answer here is, in fact, God's freedom to save whomever he desires, Jew or Gentile. And notice what he says in verse 14. He, he goes on to explain how the reason Jacob was saved and the reason Esau wasn't, the reason Jacob was part of the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of blessing, the covenant that we would say is the new covenant, and the reason Esau was excluded was because of God's choice and God's mercy. And so the first question that Paul knows is going to come to people's minds is that's not fair. That isn't fair. Eli and Hophni are sinners, I get it, but so am I. So if God shows me mercy, then Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they deserve mercy too. It's not fair that God would just show them judgment and give me mercy. If we're all sinners, he needs to be fair and give us all justice or all mercy. 
That's what a fair God would do, right? And so Paul wants to dissuade us from that kind of thinking. So he says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or effort, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What's Paul's answer to this question of fairness? He says, no, God is God. And God is allowed to show mercy on whomever he desires. If Moses is going to get mercy and Pharaoh is going to be hardened, so be it. If Hophni and Phinehas are going to be hardened and receive judgment and receive penalty, and a wicked sinner like Colin Brooks is going to be, receive mercy, so be it. That's Paul's very explicit answer here. God's told Moses from the very get-go, I show mercy on whom I choose. It's not dependent on human will or effort. Again, mercy is not something we earn from God. It's not something we receive from God. God didn't say, I'll show mercy on whoever desires it most. If you want it, then you will earn it. I'll show mercy on whoever has the best repentance. Whoever repents of their sin the best, then they will earn mercy. No, mercy does not depend on him who wills or him who runs, but on God. He continues, verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's the next logical question. Okay, fine. If God can show mercy on whom he shows mercy, okay, I get that. But then he hardens whomever he hardens. If God hardens them, then he doesn't get to hold them accountable since he's the one who hardened them. Or in other words, let's go back to verse 25 of 1 Samuel 2. God doesn't get to pour out justice on these men because the text is very clear. The reason they didn't listen was because God wanted to kill them. Isn't this God's fault, actually? This is not their fault. This is God's decree. This is God's choice. It is God who hardens. So why on earth would God punish someone for merely just falling into his plan? And what's Paul's answer? Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Notice some of the parallels. When he was talking about Pharaoh specifically, what did he say about Pharaoh in verse 17? God tells Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And guess what that sounds like? Verse 21. Has the potter no right to make 
over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, what did he say to Pharaoh? Why have I raised you up? Because I wanted to make my power known, make my wrath known. So what Paul's doing is he's taking Pharaoh as a case study and he's working it into this broader point. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He raised Pharaoh up to power, destroyed Pharaoh so that his wrath and his power might be proclaimed and his mercy might be seen in his people. And Paul says, let's take that specific example and now let's see that that's a paradigm for how God works. He hardens whom he wills. It's not just Pharaoh he's hardened. He hardens whom he wills. And he makes out of the same lump some vessels for dishonorable use and he bears with them patiently. And then brings out judgment. So Paul is working from a specific example to the larger principle. And I think as we go back to 1 Samuel 2, that's what's happening here. We take these sons and we take this specific example and we learn from this broader general principle. That Samuel did not do something before he was born to earn this mercy and grace and favor. Samuel is simply the recipient of mercy. And Hophni and Phinehas are simply going to be the recipients of judgment. And it is not unfair for God to do that. He's the potter, we're the clay. We don't have the right as mere creatures to open up our Bibles and say, no God, you you should have worked on their hearts better. Why couldn't you have just tried a little bit harder? You know, did, did Hophni and Phinehas, did they get any miracles? Did God write in the clouds, you need to repent? Did he appear to them in a vision? We don't get to demand that of God. Because this is his sovereign choice. It's his prerogative to do this way. So why was 1 Samuel 2, 22 through 26 written? I think it was written to the original audience. It was before we get there, they wanted to see before the events actually take place that this was something God resolved to do. Right? I I don't think I'm uh, jumping too far ahead because the text has already told us what's going to happen to these boys. They're going to die. So I, I don't think I'm giving anything away. The point is, is when this happens, when we finally get there and you read it, the text has given you an inspired interpretation of that event. When it comes, we need to know this was something God resolved to do. This was not an accident. This was not fate. This was not karma. This was not, oh, the universe will always distribute, so if you live a bad life, then what goes around comes around and bad things are going to happen to you. No, God did this. And he made up his mind about it before it even happened. God is resolved to pour out judgment here. And he's decided, I'm going to pour out judgment here. And the people who have received mercy, they're going to see the judgment that they deserved. And so what do we glorify in this text? Can we turn this into a happy Valentine's Day sermon now? Well, we see two things. What did Romans 9 say? Part of the reason why God pours out his wrath is to make known his wrath. And the text even says to bring glory to it. As difficult as it is to talk about the wrath of God, as difficult as it is to talk about the judgment of God, we need to understand that it is good. Would you rather serve a God who doesn't pour out justice? Would you rather serve a judge who's unjust? 
You know, my, my wife is really into true crime. She's just a true crime fanatic. She loves true crime. So we've watched a lot of it. I, she's watched a lot of it, and I've paid attention to it. And sometimes these horrible, horrible things happen, and the case is never solved, and it's just devastating. It's just devastating. But you want to know what are her favorite true crime? It's when these, something horrible, terrible happens. And in the way they tell the story, it just looks like this guy's going to get off free. But then some breakthrough in evidence and they find him and they nail him. And everybody senses a sense of glory in that. They got him. There is a glory in justice being served. There is a glory in judgment coming down. We are to glorify a just God who sees this wicked rebellion and says, I'm going to get him. And we have hope not just in this life, but especially in the life to come. That we serve a God who oftentimes brings out justice. Even now, Romans 1 talks about how the wrath of God is currently abiding. God brings out justice here on earth, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes the enemy does get away. Sometimes the wrong person is convicted. But we have this great hope that on the final day, on that day of judgment, there will be no sinner left unpunished. Nothing will slip through the cracks. And God wants us to glory in this. He wants us to see that this is, this is good news. But there's another end of this coin though. The other thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 9, and this is what I'm asking us to primarily take away today. When we read texts like this, not only should we glorify in God's justice, but we, the people of God, need to glorify in His mercy. Can I just remind you that if God wanted to treat you like He treated Hophni and Phinehas, He would have been allowed to do that? Can I remind you that God could have killed you a long time ago? Can I remind you that you have sins that you have committed in your lifetime that are also worthy of death? The Bible says, For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. If it was God's desire to just damn the whole world, He could do it and He would be just to do it. When we read about Hophni and Phinehas and Eli... We need to turn from that and glory and revel in our own salvation. We don't turn or stick our nose up in the air and do exactly what Romans 9 told us not to do and say, well, man, good thing I'm such a great person. God doesn't need to show justice to me. Good thing I'm not like Phineas and Hophni. Otherwise, I'd be getting judged too. No, you once were like them. Your sins may not have been as severe there, the, the sins are not all created equal. There are some sins that are worse than others. I'm not saying every single person is literally exactly equally sinful. So I'm not saying you were as exactly sinful as they were or sinful in all the same ways. But the fact of the matter is before you encountered Christ, you were a sinner worthy of death. And now you've been saved. Your sins have been forgiven. So what happened? What's the difference between you and Eli? What's the difference between you and Hophni, you and Phinehas? What's the difference? And the answer from Paul is this, mercy. Divine mercy. 
God shows mercy to whom He chooses. And He hardens whom He chooses. And so we have the blessing of turning to God by faith, standing before the throne of grace one day, and none of us will be able to say, I earned this. Hophni didn't, I didn't. We will all stand before the throne of grace one day, and that is what we will revel in, grace. The God who pours out grace on undeserving sinners. Yes, He judges sinners, but He also changes them. He also converts them. He also forgives them. He also gives them His Spirit and makes them new. We learn in this text the hard reality that God pours out judgment on just people who have deserved it, who do. It's not unfair when God does this. They deserved it. We learn the hardness that God is a God of wrath and he desires to make his wrath known and he gives us examples like Pharaoh, like Hophni, like Phinehas, like Eli. He gives us these examples to make his wrath known as he says in Romans 9. He wants us to see his wrath. The other end of the coin is we remember the goodness and mercy of God to us. None of us were worthy. But God has forgiven us and transformed us and made us new.